Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Shani Reichman, Director of IPFT at Israel Policy Forum. I'm hosting our Emergency Wartime Podcast, Week 4, where I'm going to be interviewing your usual host, Nari Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and policy advisor with Israel Policy Forum. Hi, Nari. How's your week going so far? Hi, Shani. Uh, good to be back with you. And uh, yeah, same as it has been for the past, what, four weeks? Just uh, still wartime in Israel. Sure. We're going to cover today, of course, that very war with Hamas. We'll also talk a little bit about U.S. policies, Israeli policies, and focus on what Defense Minister Yoav Gallant is calling the second stage of this war, because though we've had short raids going in and out of Gaza these past few weeks, it's only as of Friday night last night where we saw an official ground invasion, and I'd love for you to explain the difference perhaps as well um, at some point with IDF soldiers engaging in hand-to-hand combat in and out of homes and alleyways against Hamas terrorists. They've attacked hundreds of Hamas targets, um, actually perhaps thousands at this point. So they seem relatively successful at this early stage of the operation, but you can share more about their progress or lack of progress on that front. At the same time, the Israeli security establishment has seemingly gotten on board with expanded humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip at the urgent call of the United States and, of course, the international community, many others. Since we last spoke, an IDF raid in Gaza managed to successfully return one of the hostages. So we do have some good news this week, which is great. IDF soldier Ori Megidish, Hamas, um, on a less optimistic note, released a video of three Israeli women who are currently being held captive. So um, obviously some positive notes and and some more negative notes on that front. Uh, We believe the number of hostages to be around, I think the number right now will be 235, but I know that Hamas has not actually confirmed the list of hostages, even to the Qataris, from what I understand. So um, maybe you can shed some light on that, too. Um, Many unknowns in this war, though, I would say we don't really know how many Palestinians have been killed either because we only have Hamas to trust for those numbers. But we do know that there have been thousands of rockets um, into Israel since October 7th, um, many from Gaza, but also from, from the north. Um, from the northern front, from Hezbollah. Um, we also had the Houthis from Yemen claiming an attack last night on Israel, which Israel's air defense system intercepted. So we're going to get to some of that later. All of the many fronts that Israel is fighting at the same time in what they're calling a multi-theater war. Um, this first question is actually uh, from the listeners, though. Um, Neri, I'll actually pause if you want to fill in anything before I get to my first question. No, I mean, I, I think you set it up correctly. Uh, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Multi-front, multi-theater, uh, a lot in each theater that goes into it. So we can try to unpack a lot of it uh, for our listeners. But really the focus uh, is and remains on Gaza. And we're now in the really the second stage of the war. So if the first three weeks or so, uh, it was really, like you said, perhaps some ground raids uh, into Gaza, uh, Friday night, masses of Israeli uh, armor and infantry uh, moved in in a real way, primarily into northern Gaza, a little bit into central Gaza, and they're moving forward. They're moving forward, uh, as the military analysts here say, uh, at the pace of a D9 bulldozer. So they're moving forward very directly, uh, but very methodically, uh, slowly, but they're making progress. Uh, so there's a lot of fog of war around where exactly the IDF forces are, uh, and what they're actually doing, uh, by the way, on both sides, both on the Israeli side and from inside Gaza, uh, less information than than a lot of us expected. But to the best of our understanding, uh, they're coming up on essentially the gates of Gaza City, 
which is in the northern part of the Strip. Uh, yesterday, they moved into the Jabalia refugee camp, and probably a lot of people saw uh, the Israeli strike on uh, Hamas uh, command and control center, taking out the Jabalia battalion commander for Hamas. Uh, there were dozens killed. Uh, it's still unclear how many of those were actual Hamas uh, fighters and terrorists. Uh, the IDF claims dozens of terrorists were killed, uh, and obviously there were uh, difficult images also coming out of Jabalia uh, last night. Uh, so the collateral damage and the civilian death toll still unclear. Uh, part of that also might be just because this was a underground Hamas uh, bunker and command center that was built underneath civilian homes inside a densely packed refugee camp, uh, the Gaza Strip's largest refugee camp. Uh, so we don't know how many were killed uh, due to the collapse of that underground underground structure. Uh, but basically, to the best of my understanding, the IDF is trying to encircle Gaza City uh, from the north, uh, Bet Hanun, Bet Lahia, from the center south, uh, Jabalia. Uh, and what we expect is uh, some forays, maybe by the weekend, into Gaza City itself. Uh, so the ground operation very much ongoing. Uh, I know last week we were talking about the delay in the ground operation, but uh, the the actual fact of a ground operation was never in doubt in my mind, uh, although some other people said, uh, well, because of the hostages or because of international pressure or because of uh, Bibi Netanyahu, that it may may not materialize or it may materialize in weeks or months. Uh, I don't think that was ever really credible. So now we're in it. So this is really the second stage of, of this war, which uh, will last uh, a long time. We all have to be ready for that. Uh, and also, I'll say another thing about the ground operation. The the IDF has now been calling for several weeks now for non-combatants and civilians in the northern part of the Gaza Strip to move south uh, in in a very real way. Uh, the IDF is not fooling around. Uh, to the best of our knowledge, uh, maybe 800,000, maybe more now, uh, non-combatant civilians have moved south, uh, which is uh, supposed to be safer. There are humanitarian safe zones uh, being established in southern Gaza, uh, but there are a few hundred thousand Gazans uh, that chose to remain. Uh, and so what happens uh, to them as the IDF moves forward is, is a key question, uh, especially in various schools, shelters, and hospitals uh, that they're sheltering in uh, that are also, as we all know, uh, used by Hamas as uh, command centers, either above ground or below ground. Uh, so that's something to to very much keep in mind. Uh, airstrikes still ongoing. Um, so uh, this is very much the second stage of the war uh, in Gaza, as mentioned. And just uh, on the humanitarian front, uh, that's also been a key focus, not just of the media, but obviously everyone around the world. Uh, Israel uh, is allowing more humanitarian aid uh, via the Rafah crossing Egypt into Gaza. Uh, I think today about 80 trucks moved in. Uh, the, the Israeli government and the IDF have been very clear that they're going to expand that. Uh, I think that's all for the good. Uh, fuel remains a sticking point, remains a sticking point. Uh, and so uh, we'll see what, what happens on that front. Uh, and then finally, I think today Rafah was opened uh, for the exit of foreign nationals 
uh, in Gaza. Uh, I'm not clear how many have gotten through just yet, but it's supposed to be open today and, and maybe into tomorrow. So that's, I think, also all for the good uh, to get to get foreign nationals out, which has been a big focus, uh, obviously, of the international community. Uh, and on the flip side of the ledger, uh, still rocket fire uh, into Israel. Uh, like we said last week, it's less than what it was, say, in the first week or two of, of the war when the rate of fire was, was very intense. But uh, even in Tel Aviv and even in north of Tel Aviv, uh, once, twice, three times a day, uh, there are sirens uh, like there was earlier today. Uh, the Iron Dome is still still holding up well, uh, but there have been some impacts. Some impacts, uh, I don't believe anybody has, has been killed on the Israeli side via rocket, uh, but some injuries. Uh, and so it's still still very much a wartime footing, although, uh, again, uh, some sort of, not normalcy, but maybe emergency wartime normalcy is uh, trying to return uh, to Israeli life. Uh, like we said last week, more traffic, uh, schools are open at least for a few hours, uh, people on you know at the cafes and the like. Uh, and so that is the, the state of play of the actual Israel-Hamas war vis-a-vis Gaza, but obviously there are uh, other fronts as well that we're looking at. Sure. And I do want to tell our listeners that if you would like to ask a question for the podcast, um, our, you can go to the Israel Policy Forum Instagram. That's where we took questions this time, but I'll also provide at the end um, an email that you can send it to. But if you go to the Israel Policy Forum Instagram, you can send us some questions. And that's where some of our listener questions this week came from. And the first question, yes. which... Shani, yeah. Sorry, before I uh, before we get into the questions, which I think is, is a great initiative uh, on your part, uh, we should also mention that this hasn't been cost-free, the second stage of the war. Uh, the IDF moving in heavily in ground forces and troops, uh, but there have been casualties. Uh, about 13 uh, IDF soldiers have been killed uh, in recent days in heavy fighting uh, inside Gaza. Uh, and so we should also uh, have to mention that as well. Uh, this was never going to be easy or quick uh, or particularly pleasant, uh, especially not for the people inside Gaza, um, definitely not for Hamas, which is on the other side of the of this equation as well, and rightfully so, uh, but also for the Israeli forces. Sure, and that's that's really connected to the the question that many people have because I think many Jews around the world and Israelis feel an urgency for this ground invasion. They feel it's necessary um, and that it's justified, but at the same time, they recognize that we will lose people, that that Israeli soldiers will be killed, that Palestinian civilians will be killed, um, and that's obviously a tragedy. And and we actually saw that two weeks. Um, in Amarivpol, uh, two weeks after October 7th, 65% of Israelis supported a ground invasion immediately. But just one week later, um, it was down to 49%, who 49% believed that Israel should wait uh, before launching a large-scale ground operation, which obviously they did not. And I assume that that's in part related to the hostages, but also related to the the need to protect their, their own soldiers and their own people. So one of the, that leads into one of the main questions uh, that many folks wanted to know, which is if if there was any alternative. And I think it's not just because we're wondering ourselves, but we're being asked all the time, was a ground invasion necessary from, from more outsiders, right? Um, so I want you to respond to that, Neri, this question of was a ground invasion truly the only path forward for Israel that could make sense? Short answer is uh, yes. It was the only path forward uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, and by the way, that poll, uh, yes, it's accurate uh, that... If after October 7th, uh, the public mood here was send in the tanks immediately, uh, like we talked about previously, uh, it's good that it wasn't just done in haste uh, with little planning and preparation um, out of, say, uh, uh, anger 
and disgust at what happened on October 7th. Uh, so the delay, I think, was was warranted, and, and we see that now on the ground uh, with the IDF's methodical move uh, into northern Gaza. But I think the poll indicates that at least some of the Israeli public uh, was willing to wait to see if a hostage deal uh, was able to come to fruition. Uh, now, I don't know what that wait would have necessarily entailed. Uh, I think the phrasing of it was, you know, are you in support of an imminent ground invasion? Uh, so what is imminent? Uh, what would a delay be? Is it a few days? Is it a week? Is it two months? Uh, obviously, some of the hostage families themselves uh, have called for both a delay or a halt to the ground invasion and essentially for Israel to pay any price. Uh, including emptying Israeli prisons of all Palestinian prisoners, uh, including um, you know murderous terrorists, uh, about 6,000, uh, I think the count is. Uh, it doesn't seem like the current Israeli government is in any mood or willing to to make that kind of deal, at least at least not yet. Uh, and so I think that's part of the explanation for for that poll number. But um, I will say that uh, there's majority, if not overwhelming, support for the idea of a ground invasion and a ground operation and a deep one and a significant one, unlike uh, all previous Israel-Hamas wars uh, in Gaza, for the simple reason that uh, both militarily and also, I think, intellectually, uh, the Israeli public and leadership understand that uh, to achieve the goals that were set for this war, which is uh, eliminating Hamas as a military threat to Israel uh, and also essentially collapsing Hamas rule in Gaza, um, that can't be done from the air. That can't be done from the air. And we've seen air campaigns in countless rounds in the past. And uh, both Hamas and other militant groups in Gaza have only come back stronger, uh, despite what the generals and the politicians may have had us believe uh, after every single Gaza round in the past, that uh, we battered Hamas, uh, we've taken away their capabilities, uh, they're now deterred. Uh, That obviously uh, was was nonsense and inaccurate uh, given October 7th and given the fact that, like I said, after every round, uh, their rocket fire and other military capabilities were uh, so much greater, literally after every round, uh, including this one, uh, what we saw on October 7th and, and recent weeks in terms of Hamas's military capabilities. So the Israeli public is in favor. Uh, it's the only way to achieve the goal. And I'll also add another thing that given uh, the barbarity and the heavy, heavy death toll of October 7th, not just civilians, right? Uh, babies, children, women, innocent civilians, but also amongst the security forces. Uh, I think some 350 soldiers and police uh, died on October 7th in, in its direct aftermath. Uh, the sense here is that uh, the public now is, is willing to pay a heavy price to achieve uh, the war aims to, uh, to eliminate Hamas as a threat. Uh, and so, like we said, you know, 13 IDF casualties uh, over the past few days of fighting inside Gaza. Um, you know, it's it's sad and tragic, but uh, I think the Israeli public understands uh, that this will be a, a costly and lengthy war. Uh, but really, the bottom line is that, at least from the Israeli point of view, and I think it's accurate, uh, this war was both imposed on Israel by Hamas, deliberately, uh, and that this is a war of no choice, uh, that we can't go back to the status quo ante on October 6th, uh, you can't leave Hamas in Gaza uh, to build up once again and threaten Israel once again. Uh, a senior Hamas official, not in Gaza, for, but outside Gaza, I think said today or yesterday that uh, they would j- just repeat October 7th again and again and again until Israel was destroyed. 
Uh, and so uh, it's untenable. And this brings us back to uh, the other fundamental point, which we've tried to stress here on the podcast since the start of the war. This, uh, this is a war of no choice, but this is almost a war of last resort. Uh, that Israel's Gaza policy, as we mentioned before, uh, everything else was tried both uh, severe blockade and then indirect negotiations and easing measures, including almost 20,000 laborers and uh, a separate commercial crossing between Gaza and Egypt with Israeli acquiescence and uh, more imports, more exports and infrastructure help and Qatari cash and everything. And the result was October 7th. And so if uh, further blockade doesn't actually solve the problem, and negotiations and what uh, I heard one analyst uh, on CNN yesterday say, well, we need a ceasefire and then we need to find a political solution. Well, Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005. Uh, it negotiated with Hamas, albeit by the Egyptians and the Qataris and the UN, uh, for several years and was willing to give things to Hamas that it had not considered giving them ever. Uh, and again, October 7th was was the result. So what are you left with? Except... Uh, uh, trying to achieve uh, the aim of this war, uh, which is eliminating this terrorist group uh, and its control over this piece of territory. Last week, we met with many analysts in Washington, D.C., who, I mean, I think all of us are feeling a lot of regret um, in in neglecting the situation, although IPF did put out a, a report on this years ago. But um, that that question of how, mis- how much we misunderstood Hamas. And I think what I heard over and over again was believing Hamas to be a much more rational actor than they actually were and misunderstanding the role that their ideology is playing in everything they're doing and their very, very long-term strategy. And there was a lot of regret expressed around that. And speaking of calls for a ceasefire, I, I think I know your answer to this, but I think I want to hear it anyway. And I know our listeners do because so many reached out about this. There are calls for a ceasefire right now for, from Arab governments, from activists. Um, and I mean, we're obviously at a point where most countries that are allied with Israel, the governments are not calling for one, but we're even hearing it from, from the UN spaces as well. So how is that perceived? And I, I do just think it needs to be said that many of those calling for a ceasefire are not calling for hostage releases in the same breath, which causes them to lack credibility in the eyes of many, rightfully so. But at the same time, we are witnessing many Gazan civilian casualties. Again, unless you expect me to cite Hamas as a credible source, we don't actually know how many civilians are dead yet, but um, certainly many, and that is quite tragic. So I, I can't quite blame people for for feeling the need to call for one, but how is that being perceived? How do you perceive those types of calls? So... I'll tell you how it's perceived by Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, I was at a press conference with him, I think, two nights ago uh, at the Kiriya military headquarters, and uh, he flat out said uh, there would be no ceasefire. Uh, so he says that now, uh, but that is the position uh, as of right now. And uh, he says, you know, Hamas will just use that as an opportunity to uh, rearm, regroup, uh, and it'll use it for, for its own purposes. Uh, it also buys Hamas time. And this goes to to the first part of your question, Hamas's ideology and and really the strategic logic behind this, uh, such as it is uh, launching this total war against Israel. Um, I've been uh, uh, deeply involved uh, this week. I'm writing a profile of Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar. So he essentially is the the supreme leader of uh, Hamas in the Gaza Strip. A really interesting fellow with a really interesting past. Uh, We won't get into it at the moment. But it speaks to the complete misunderstanding by Israel, uh, by the Israeli security establishment, by the Israeli intelligence services 
of this individual, of this leader, and Hamas. Uh, he directly and personally, and I heard this firsthand for years, was viewed as a pragmatist, that he was more interested in extracting from Israel via the calibrated use of force, uh, whether rocket fire, uh, border marches and riots, uh, incendiary balloons that float across the, the frontier and light fields in southern Israel on fire. But again, the careful calibrated use of force to extract concessions from from Israel. Uh, what one senior Israeli security official put it to me earlier this year, uh, you know, the language he uses to talk to us is uh, is rocket fire. Um, and that was understood. That was essentially uh, part of the, the rules of the game, the relationship between Israel and Sinwar and, and Hamas and Gaza. And, uh, and that proved to be uh, tragically, right? Tragically and completely incorrect. Uh, that this person that was viewed as a pragmatist who had spent 22 years in Israeli jail, speaks fluent Hebrew, follows Israeli politics and society closely. Uh, I was told he, he's read uh, Jabotinsky and Begin and Herzl and, and Rabin, you know, all the books about Israel. Uh, he was viewed as somebody that, you know, you may not like, uh, but that you could actually do business with. Uh, and that proved not the case. And so the question is, is why? What were his motivations? And for many Israelis, uh, they say, well, we, we just didn't appreciate the ideology behind both the man and the organization. That when they say they want to destroy the state of Israel, uh, they actually mean it. Uh, and that, you know, these kind of temporary truces, these hoodnas or these uh, indirect negotiations and understandings uh, were just a means to buy time and build up their military capabilities. Uh, and so to circle back to the question of a ceasefire, um, right now, that is not on the table because that's exactly what Yahya Sinwar wants and was banking on, that as the death toll in Gaza rises, international pressure will grow on Israel to halt, to halt, uh, and essentially they can just declare victory and live to fight another day. And so uh, it would just play into their hands, into their strategy, uh, and Israel, at least for right now, is not willing to do that. Uh, the Biden administration, like you said, other uh, allies of Israel are also not playing into those hands, and I'd argue rightfully so. And we have to see whether, you know, maybe a week or two or whenever down the line that, you know, there may be opportunities for humanitarian pauses to allow more aid in, uh, to allow more more people out of Gaza to re receive uh, medical care, uh, perhaps a hostage deal. I think that, that would be uh, potentially in the cards uh, down the line, but a, a full ceasefire. Ceasefire now, like people are asking for. Uh, that's, what, that's what Sinwar wants. That's what he's banking on. That is part of his war strategy. Uh, and so, again, to achieve the goal uh, of, of this operation in this war, uh, you can't stop because uh, Hamas will just regroup and rearm and live to fight another day. And, uh, you know, I hate to put it in existential terms for, for Israel, but uh, at least for the people of southern Israel, they're not going to go back to their homes uh, if Hamas is just a, a few miles down the road. Thank you for that, Neri. And, oh, sorry, did you want to add something? Yeah, and I'll just say on the issue of casualties, uh, again, um, we say this again, and it's not just paying lip service. You know, it, you, we, do, we all do need to um, profess and really mean when we say that we have full empathy for the innocent civilians caught up in all of this inside the Gaza Strip. Uh, that had no say in the launching of total war by Hamas against Israel on October 7th and are now paying dire, dire consequences for that decision, that deliberate decision by Sinwar, 
and and the others uh, in in Gaza. Uh, and to the best of our understanding, again, the numbers people are are questioning it. it you know, it's not my place to to get into the how and the why. Uh, that's the only thing we have to go by is official figures coming out of Gaza. Uh, so, to the best of our understanding, it's nine thousand. But I will say that the better question is how many of those 9,000 are combatants? Nobody ever breaks that down, um, at, at least officially combatants or at least military-age males that, are, uh, that have been killed inside Gaza. So we don't know what percentage is actually just when they say 9,000. Uh, it's almost up to 9,000 as of today. Uh, how many of those are terrorists? Uh, we don't know. Uh, and then number two, I'll just say in terms of the issue of proportionality and, and questions of international law, which uh, is not my favorite topic, not, not because of this war, but just in general. Uh, 9,000, right? And this war has been going on now for 26 days. Heavy, heavy aerial campaign by the Israeli forces. Now you have ground forces, armor, infantry, and everything else inside the Gaza Strip over the course now of 26 days. Uh, so that's on average 350 casualties officially, according to the uh, Gazan count a day, uh, 350 a day. And on October 7th, 1,400 Israelis were killed. So in terms of proportionality, uh, we also have to keep that in mind in terms of just a, a daily death count. And Hamas did that, by the way, with no air force and no tanks. They did that with AK-47s, RPGs, grenades, knives. Uh, in one case that I saw a garden hoe uh, and every other sadistic method of murder that they could uh, over the course of one day, 1,400 Israelis. That sort of leads us into our next question, which is from people who I think do support a ground invasion, but still have questions regarding the specific military tactics that Israel is using. Uh, one of the questions was specifically regarding the claims that Israel has used white phosphorus. Now, that's in southern Lebanon, um, not in Gaza, but earlier in the conflict, there were claims um, that it was being used in Gaza. And so that's a specific question, but I think in, in general, more broadly, there is a question around to what extent is Israel doing its very best uh, to limit civilian casualties. Um, I listened to a, a briefing from Moshe Halbertal uh, this week, who was one of the authors of the IDF Code of Ethics, and he spoke in, in enormous detail um, about the extents to which they are at least supposed to um, uphold uh, civilian life. In amidst their war, but I, I would love for you to speak more about that, Nari, and particularly where where do you receive information from? To what extent do you trust everything coming out of the military, um, things of that nature? So, in terms of white phosphorus, I can just say we've asked the question, and the IDF categorically denies that it uses white phosphorus. Uh, and so, I know that was uh, some reports here and there. I don't know if in Lebanon or in Gaza, but in the early stages of the war, I personally haven't seen additional reports about the use of white phosphorus or the alleged use of white phosphorus by the IDF. Uh, so that's just uh, in terms of the first part of the question. Uh, the second part of the question, look, uh, we understand that, we understand two things. Number one, the IDF is trying to minimize civilian casualties. Uh, if it wanted to, it could just level Gaza. Um, and I know that the pictures coming out of Gaza are, are quite difficult, but uh, given the firepower available to Israel, uh, and again, uh, 9,000 casualties is, is not a small amount, uh, but again, put that in proportion to one day of uh, carnage and savagery by Hamas in southern Israel. Uh, we need to keep that in mind as well. Uh, so in terms of the at least stated attempts and efforts by the IDF to minimize civilian casualties, uh, you know, I tend to believe that. But again, 
you should you can't and shouldn't believe everything that comes out of even the IDF's mouth. So you need to maintain some uh, critical distance from that, uh, and also keeping in mind that there will be civilian casualties. Uh, this is a war, uh, and again, this isn't my statement. This is what Israeli officials and politicians say themselves, uh, and that Hamas is a terrorist group embedded inside a densely packed civilian population. And when people pose this question uh, to me, um, usually privately, I say, okay, where do you think Hamas has its military installations? Point it out on a map. And when they can't or they won't, uh, then the reality is, and this is the reality, uh, that they're embedded in apartment blocks, uh, next to mosques, next to schools, inside hospitals, and underground all of it. Underground all of it. Their underground cities are underground, uh, you know, not in open fields, but underneath, like we said, you know, a refugee camp or Shifa hospital. And this is a fact, right? It's not just IDF talking points. I may have mentioned this before, but I know personally from a non-Israeli source that Shifa hospital in Gaza City uh, is a major command and control and military installation for Hamas, both the hospital itself and below ground. Now, uh, what Israel will and will not do when it comes to um, attacking or not those installations, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and it should, the IDF should uh, do everything in its power to minimize civilian casualties. Um, but uh, again, uh, Hamas uh, deliberately, again, chose uh, both to launch this war and to also set up its fighters and military and rockets and weapons arsenals and everything else uh, inside uh, one of the most densely populated territories in the world. Um, and so I, I say this not to freak people out, but uh, we're now, what, four or five, six days into the ground operation. Uh, it, will, it will get harder. Uh, the images will get worse. And we all have to prepare for that. Uh, and keep in mind uh, how this war started, why this war started, the political context within which this war is happening, i.e. Israel-Gaza and Israel-Hamas relations going back uh, to 2007 and the Hamas takeover of the Gaza Strip. And we all need to, to prepare for it. Uh, and keep in mind that uh, Israel did not choose uh, this war. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu would have much rather uh, kept Hamas in power in Gaza and uh, quiet and given them, you know, he would have given Yahya more 50,000 workers, he would have given Yahya Sinwar uh, more money, he would have given them more easing of restrictions around the Gaza Strip. Uh, Sinwar chose to launch this war. Our final question that focuses so narrowly on Gaza is the question of what is daily life going to look like the day after? Um, the defense minister spoke about the different phases of the war, said that we are now in the second phase, and that the fourth phase will lead us to Israel no longer being responsible for Gaza. What do you think that actually means? I don't believe he went into detail about it, but I'm curious your thoughts. And that also is one of the questions that was streaming in uh, on a pretty regular basis into the IPF account. So it's a great question. It's a question being asked both of Israel, especially by the Biden administration. I know this uh, for a fact. Uh, and it's also a question being asked within uh, the Israeli security establishment. And a lot of people, both inside the system and outside the system, a lot of very smart analysts that we know and love are working on this very question, uh, both an exit strategy for, for the IDF once they achieve the goals of this operation or uh, ostensibly claim 
to achieve the goals of this operation, uh, and also what the post-war order in Gaza will will and can be. Uh, nobody, to the best of my understanding, has an answer or, or a decision hasn't yet been reached by Israel uh, for, I'd argue, two reasons. Uh, number one, it will depend very heavily on how this ground operation goes, and so nobody quite knows what post-war Gaza will look like because nobody quite knows how the actual war uh, will go. And number two, I think it's um, a very difficult question to answer, right? If you're talking about post-war Gaza and Israel not wanting to reoccupy the Strip, and again, Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip, both the settlers and the military, in 2005, back to internationally recognized borders. Again, we have to keep saying this because uh, uh, both Israeli politicians and uh, people around the world uh, never mention it, and I, I don't for life me understand why. Uh, when people say end the occupation, it's like, well, Israel did, and uh, what, 18 years later, uh, this is what happened. Now, again, I'm not saying that ending the occupation is bad. We're all in favor of that. Uh, but in terms of the context of Israel-Gaza relations, uh, this is the end result. So it's a very difficult question. And so if Israel doesn't want to reoccupy the entire strip and run it like it did uh, before 2005, then another solution has to be found. And that other solution has to include other elements that also have a say, such as the Palestinian Authority, such as uh, various Arab states, whether Egypt, Jordan, the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, uh, the international community, the UN. Uh, there are all kinds of different formulas and formats and ideas being floated around. Um, I don't think anybody has, has come to a concrete decision, and I don't think anyone um, on the outside uh, has, has uh, consented or approved their own, their own role in what a post-war Gaza will look like because they, they don't know how, uh, how the actual war would unfold. But uh, to my mind, it will have to be some combination of all of the above, including, by the way, maybe local uh, Gazan leadership, right? Uh, Hamas is not all of Gaza. Uh, there are various uh, either Fatah party or other factions or clans that have influence inside Gaza. Um, and so, you know, they could also be part of the solution, uh, various Palestinian leaders and figures in exile, um, but ideally, hopefully, a, a re-strengthened Palestinian authority. And by the way, as part of this question, a lot of the proposals that I've personally seen, they do talk about it needing to be not just a Gaza-specific post-war order, but rather a holistic, uh, all-of-Israel-Palestine policy shift. Meaning that it can't just focus on, okay, what happens in Gaza? Who gets to run it? What is the actual security regime for Gaza? But rather, what happens on the West Bank? And that will likely require a different Israeli government, very different Israeli policies vis-a-vis -vis the West Bank, especially in terms of settlements, especially in terms of re-strengthening and rejuvenating and helping to reform uh, a weakened PA. Uh, all of that will need to change, uh, irrespective of what may or may not happen on the ground uh, inside Gaza. Continuing to look at the West Bank, our colleague Alex Lederman wrote a piece in Time magazine this week, or actually last week, covering the uptick in settler violence in the West Bank. While the IDF has conducted raids and drone strikes in terror cells in the West Bank as part of its strategy to root out Hamas, which is, of course, an honorable goal, 
the same time, we are seeing Jewish Israelis who live in the West Bank attacking Palestinian civilians, which at this point were up to seven people who are killed, who are, of course, not militants. Now, these these uh, Jewish Israelis are seeking revenge and they see an opportunity, knowing that at this point, the military and police who might typically hopefully get involved are now also feeling this sense of anger and are frankly very preoccupied with the ongoing war. To what extent is the IDF willing to crack down on these attacks, which frankly might get even more out of hand because Itamar Ben-Gvir, um, one of our ministers, has made it his business to hand out guns across Israel, understandably so, but that obviously contributes to um, how uh, violent these attacks might become. So what is what is your sense of the extent to which the IDF is willing to rein this in, or are we going to see it get worse? So last week we talked about uh what the IDF says uh, was the gloves coming off vis-a-vis the West Bank as well, and this you know major crackdown uh, not only on Hamas but especially on Hamas uh, operatives and activists inside the West Bank. I think this operation uh, has or is close to running its course. Um, I don't know if that's how the Israeli uh, government and military see it, but it's my opinion. Uh, what's happening in the West Bank right now, especially vis-a-vis extremist settlers, and also. Uh, by certain IDF units is an absolute disgrace. And it needs to be said. It has to be said. It's an absolute disgrace uh, when certain videos and reports come out of settlers shooting Palestinians in the West Bank uh, or certain IDF units uh, allegedly, it's being investigated, but allegedly uh, torturing or beating up Palestinian laborers in Hebron. Uh, This cannot and must not happen. Uh, both because it's wrong, obviously, and also because it severely undermines the overall war effort for Israel. Uh, If the West Bank is destabilized and blows up, that is not going to help the war effort, not in Gaza, not vis-a-vis Lebanon and Hezbollah, not vis-a-vis Yemen and the Houthis and whatever else is coming down the pike. And so it boggles my mind that this isn't uh, taken more seriously by both the politicians uh, maybe not Itamar Ben-Gvir and Smotrich, but all the others, uh, and also by a central command of the IDF. Uh, and it's it's an absolute disgrace. Uh, and big picture in terms of Israeli strategy, I don't think it's sustainable. And uh, this is a fact right now that essentially the, the West Bank is on full lockdown and closure, that uh, Palestinians are essentially staying in their villages, staying in their cities. Uh, economic life has essentially come to a halt, uh, especially also because the the crossings into Israel are, are closed, probably for for good reason, but uh, it's not sustainable. And so, at a certain point, the government has to, the Israeli government has to figure out uh, what to do in the West Bank, and it needs to happen sooner rather than later. Uh, n- by the way, not only in terms of the security regime, and not only in terms of the violations and excesses both of Israeli settlers and certain army units. Uh, but also economically um, and diplomatically vis-a-vis the Palestinian Authority. Uh, This is a war against Hamas in Gaza. Uh, It's not a war against all Palestinians. And this needs to be said as well, ideally and hopefully, from the very top of the Israeli government. Speaking of the top of the Israeli government, in the first few weeks of the war, and as recently as last week when we were chatting, Netanyahu was still being widely criticized for his avoidance of the media his inability to take responsibility for a disaster that happened under his watch and not meeting with hostage families yet. 
He seems to have turned that around a bit. Uh, it appears he has addressed some of these concerns. He's met with the families at this point, um, I think a few days ago or late last week. Uh, he's also made some statements indicating that he is willing to take on, take some of the blame. Has public opinion turned back in his favor at all because of this? Where do you see him him going for now? No, uh, p- public opinion has not turned uh, back in Bibi Netanyahu's favor. Uh, although miracles do occur, Shani, uh, Netanyahu has given... I think two press conferences, one to the local press and one to us, uh, the foreign media, uh, over the past few days uh, after refusing to do so for... In Hebrew? Was it in Hebrew, though? Yeah, the local press, he answered questions. Because he he tends to only answer in English. (laughs) No, no. um, I mean, I can tell you about the press conference that I was at, but uh, yeah, he answered questions uh, in Hebrew. I think it was Saturday night. He was flanked by uh, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant and uh, Benny Gantz. And most of the questions, uh, obviously, were directed at... Bibi, uh, including one, you know, will you take responsibility? He uh, did not take responsibility for October 7th, and that's uh, still a major, major sticking point. All the other officials, whether political or military, have, I think, on the whole, taken responsibility for October 7th. He still refuses to do so. And not only that, uh, I think there was a late night tweet Saturday into Sunday where he attacked uh, the security chiefs. I think the tweet came out at 1 a.m., and by morning, he, Benny Gantz and also I think Gadi Eisenkot, who was also part of the war cabinet, said, this is, you can't do this. You're attacking your own security chiefs while they're running a war. Uh, retract it. And essentially, Bibi Netanyahu uh, deleted the tweet and did something he never does. He apologized. So again, miracles uh, do occur, even in the Holy Land. Uh, but yeah, all of that behavior is, uh, is, hasn't gone unnoticed by the Israeli public. Uh, his opinion polling and personal approval rating uh, is still very low and cratering. Uh, and so he, he hasn't turned it around. Uh, and I can say, too, that he was asked by one of the foreign journalists in the press conference I was at two nights ago, uh, will you resign? And uh, I think his answer was, the only thing I intend to resign is, is Hamas or, or something to that effect, uh, kind of very stupid turn of phrase, uh, but it's being asked both by the local media, both by the foreign media, uh, by the Israeli public. And so, yes, uh, Netanyahu thinks he has a future after this war. Uh, I think we said this, the first emergency wartime podcast, uh, he's still walking around acting like uh, he has a political future and that he'll remain prime minister. Uh, I don't I don't see how that's possible. I tend to agree, but... Um uh, a good gambler would not bet against Benjamin Netanyahu coming back from a failure. So we'll see. <laughs> Looking, yeah. sorry, Neri, do you want to take that bet? Are we taking the bet right now? No, I'll take, I'll take that bet. I, I will, uh, I, I will, uh, <laughs> you know, buy you whatever you want next time I'm in New York after this is all <laughs> over. But I think, yes, you know, Netanyahu has uh, maneuvered his way out of uh, many and almost all difficult political corners uh, in his long political career. But nothing like October 7th has ever happened. And the mere fact that he's not willing to take responsibility for it and thinks that he can get out of it and put it all on the security chiefs uh, is, is ridiculous because he, he's the man in charge. Uh, he is the prime minister. He said in the past that uh, prime ministers need to take responsibility. This is when he was in opposition. Uh, he needs to take responsibility. And, and by the way, this was his uh, Hamas and Gaza strategy that was being implemented. This kind of divide and rule strategy, dividing the West Bank from Gaza, propping up the militants and terrorists in the Gaza Strip with money and everything else, 
uh, through indirect negotiations. So they stay quiet. Uh, and so you don't have a united and functioning Palestinian national entity that will demand things like actual peace talks and an actual two-state solution. Uh, and all the while, uh, weakening and taking for granted and not negotiating really with the Palestinian Authority with the actual people who you work with in tandem to uphold security uh, on the West Bank. And so this was his strategy for over a decade, and it blew up in the worst way possible, like we always say here uh, over the past month, on October 7th. And he needs to take responsibility for that. This entire thing, you know, I, the Gaza-Hamas problem is is hugely difficult, and there were no easy answers even before October 7th. And, you know, launching a ground operation to eliminate Hamas is easy to say um, as a soundbite in a TV studio or in an op-ed, but uh, to actually pull the trigger on it, uh, so to speak, very, very difficult, even if you weren't Bibi Netanyahu for any Israeli government for a variety of reasons. Uh, but that doesn't mean and shouldn't have meant that you're going to weaken uh, the other part of the Palestinian uh, territory, the West Bank. He should have propped up and done everything possible uh, to show that moderation and nonviolence and negotiations actually work to show the Palestinian public that there, uh, there is a, a real alternative. Uh, when Hamas took over the Gaza Strip in 2007, when in six days, in this violent violent coup, and they kicked out the Palestinian Authority and the Fatah Party, the initial strategy that was pushed by, especially the, the U.S. administration, until Bibi Netanyahu came back to power, was to, to, to use the West Bank as a model, to do everything possible to hold the West Bank up as a model uh, in contrast to uh, a Gaza Strip ruled by Hamas. And Netanyahu essentially did the opposite for over a decade. Before we come back to Gaza, I'd like you to share a little bit what has been happening on the northern front with Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Houthis in Yemen, who are also uh, seeking some attention from Israel these days. What have you seen since we last spoke? Well, uh, the Houthis in Yemen uh, are now involved. They, uh, I think a week ago, they fired some missiles and drones that uh, the U.S. Navy, I think we mentioned this last week, uh, intercepted. And then in recent days, uh, they fired uh, at least one ballistic missile that was intercepted by the Arrow Aerial Defense System. Uh, I think only the second time ever that the Arrow system was uh, operationally deployed uh, successfully, we should add. Uh, this is meant to be the, the long-range um missile defense, right? So if you have the arrow and then you have the Iron Dome well below it, there's also a middle one called David Sling for kind of medium range missiles and rockets. So the arrow was deployed because it was a heavy ballistic missile that the Houthis uh, fired from Yemen at uh, at Elat. Uh, also, I think other drones, I don't know if they were intercepted by Israeli fighter jets in the Red Sea or landed in Egypt and maybe even in Jordan. Uh, so they're now uh, ostensibly involved. It's a concern it's an Iranian proxy, obviously, uh, and so that's uh, the southern front. Uh, and then the northern front, uh, Hezbollah, you still have these cross-border clashes, essentially Hezbollah still trying to fire anti-tank missiles at Israeli forces and communities, uh, mortar fire at Israeli forces, uh, some rocket fire. Uh, there was one rocket or a few rockets fired the other day a bit deeper into Israel, but that seems uh, to not have uh, remained consistent. Uh, you also have other Palestinian factions, including Hamas elements in southern Lebanon, also firing rockets. So it's a concern, but it's still within the quote-unquote parameters uh, that are understood by both sides, uh, these expanded parameters, rules of the game, uh, as of October 7th. So uh, 
it's still a concern, but still, let's say, uh, reasonable, uh, given just the, the current reality we find ourselves in, with the one caveat that uh, Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, is set to give his first speech since the outbreak of war on Friday. And so everyone here is waiting uh, with bated breath to hear what he has to say. Uh, it's unclear what he's going to say and what red lines or promises he's, he's going to make for Hamas in Gaza. Uh, hopefully he doesn't go too far, and hopefully Hezbollah does uh, not escalate uh, fully on its end, because that would, that would be a, a very different war than what we've seen now uh, over the past three or four weeks. And we should also mention that on Friday as well, uh, U.S. Secretary of State uh, Blinken will be visiting Israel. Uh, I don't know if that's a coincidence, but uh, he is supposed to be on the ground uh, when Nasrallah speaks. So maybe uh, maybe to give something uh, a bit more to Nasrallah to think about. Before we wrap up and get to our last topic, which is uh, the hostage crisis, I want to look back internally into Israel because we have really beautiful stories of Arab Israelis working overtime in hospitals, folks on October 7th driving around under gunfire to bring people to safety. But we are now hearing, of course, some some really awful stories, videos of um, Netanya College with a massive group of of far-right Jewish activists yelling death to Arabs, trying to break into the dorms to attack college students. Following that, Benny Gantz put out what I thought was a really great video on his Twitter, which I highly recommend you reading. I don't think there are English subtitles, though, about how Arab Israelis are really part of Israeli society, part of the fabric of our society. No one should uh, decide to inflict collective punishment on their fellow citizens. Um, Are are we destined to see a growth of this type of racism, though? Um, Does does Israeli unity simply only apply to the Jews living there, or can Israeli society get beyond that and really bring in uh, the Arab communities into this fight with them? So uh, you're right. Uh, Arab Israelis have been uh, exemplary since uh, this all started. Uh, all of their communities and also the what they called mixed cities, you know, Arab Jewish neighborhoods and cities like uh, Jaffa, Ramle, Lod, Haifa, uh, have been almost completely uh, quiet and stable. And I think uh, that's all for the good and uh, really incredible work. Uh, also on the ground. Um, also by the authorities, uh, you know, Benny Gantz put out his video. I think Mansour Abbas, the head of the Ram party, uh, also put out a statement or gave an interview earlier today calling for uh, responsibility uh, on the part of Arab Israelis uh, as well. Uh, and I think, I, I think and I hope uh, that will continue uh, because, as I said last time, um, what happened in May 2021 during the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza, it wasn't uh, the rioting and the intercommunal clashes because of Gaza, uh, it was because of everything that preceded it uh, at Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Temple Mount compound in Jerusalem, and what was happening in East Jerusalem, thanks to uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir and other far-right ultranationalist militias. So uh, uh, hopefully that, that continues. Uh, I know for a fact that in a place like Jaffa, there are efforts uh, by, by locals, both Arabs and Jews, to, uh, to engage each other uh, to create groups for both dialogue and also just neighborhood security to make sure that things uh, uh, don't happen and don't uh, get out of hand. Uh, and I think, I think that's amazing. I think it's amazing. Uh, and having said that, uh, we have seen incidents like what happened in Netanya and other places that, uh, that are troubling, to say the least, uh, and that I hope that on the other side of this, uh, that everyone uses the opportunity to uh, press for uh, coexistence and a different future and a better future uh, and not use the events of October 7th and, and this war for further division and hatred 
um, you know, that, that's my hope. But, uh, but again, you know, we have to, we have to get to the other side of, of this war, um, before we'll know exactly how it plays out within Israeli society, both Arab and Jewish. And by the way, just a final point, Shani, we talk about, uh, the victims and the casualties of October 7th, 1400 people killed, uh, dozens of Arab Israelis and Bedouins and non-Jews also killed and slaughtered. Uh, we know this for a fact. There have been funerals. We we have seen um, videos of people, uh, non-Jews, uh, getting killed. Um, so this wasn't just a, an attack on on Jews uh, living in Israel. It was an attack on all of Israeli society. Certainly to the credit, and, and actually some might recall, you might recall that in our first uh, emergency wartime brief, we discussed this exact this exact issue, the concern for the mixed cities, um, you know, going up in flames. And so it's really to the credit of the police officers, frankly, and to the credit of all the civil society groups doing the work on the ground. Now, I know you've met with families this week of those in Hamas captivity, and we've had a few positive stories, of course, with five hostages being released over the past few weeks. But of course, there are still hundreds of people left in Gaza. Um, I do want to give a quick shout out to the amazing people putting up the kidnap p- posters, at least across cities in the United States, maybe beyond that. Uh, Nitsan, Mintz, and Deda Bande, two street artists from Tel Aviv, who I met this week, who designed them and are spearheading that because they make it impossible to ignore that our families have been taken hostage. And that is exactly how it needs to be every day until everyone is home. Um, Beyond that, Neri, can you share what hope there is actually for a diplomatic or military approach to getting hostages back? And tell us more about David Barnea, the Mossad director's trip to Qatar, um, which I assume is connected to that. Um, tell us where we can be hopeful, if at all, for um, some sort of uh, solution to this crisis. So we should remain hopeful. Uh, so you're right. Hamas uh, unilaterally released um, four uh, women hostages, uh, two Americans and two Israelis. Uh, over the past, I believe, week and a half or so. Uh, and then one uh, Israeli soldier that was taken hostage uh, was released by Israeli forces uh, after the launch of, of the ground operation. So a total of five, but uh, I think the last count is that there are still 240 uh, people, by the way, both Israelis and non-Israelis uh, in Hamas captivity. Uh, I think by one count, there may be 75 non-Israelis in Hamas captivity, uh, the bulk of which are Thai foreign workers. Uh, I can't for the life of me imagine why Hamas is, is still holding them in captivity. Uh, I, I can't get into into the minds of, of Hamas or even Yahya Sinmar. But uh, the, I'll tell you what the official position is of, of the Israeli government, uh, and then I'll tell you what the families are saying, or at least part of the families are saying, and then what my hope is. So the official position of the Israeli government is that they're doing every effort, making every effort to uh, get the hostages out uh, via diplomatic channels, like you mentioned, the Qataris, uh, which obviously have uh, a lot of influence on, on Hamas. Uh, the Hamas political echelon is uh, mostly based in Doha. Uh, Qatar obviously funded uh, Hamas uh, for many years, um, by the way, with Israeli approval, we should say, with the approval of Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, and so the hope is that there's this back channel uh, that we don't know too much about, but that we we are following. Uh, that can persuade Hamas to at least release uh, the foreign nationals, the babies, the 30 children that they're holding, the elderly that they're holding. Uh, so that's the hope that some kind of deal uh, can be reached. Uh, and the Israeli government says that the ground operation will increase pressure on Hamas to actually come to better terms and be willing to to make that kind of deal. 
Uh, so that's the official position of the Israeli government. At least some of the families, including some people that I've met with over the past week, say um, this is nonsense. Uh, Israel should just cut a deal, including releasing, like we said, all of the uh, Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails and uh, just bring everybody home. Just bring everybody home. Uh, at least some of the families are, are saying that. Uh, and then what I think and my hope is that uh, I'm not entirely convinced that Hamas uh, would even make that deal uh, because they know that the hostages are a major trump card uh, when Israel and the Israeli forces get closer and closer. That at a certain point uh, they will release a harsher video than what we saw released two days ago with the three women, uh, that uh, one of them had a very uh, uh, sharp message, uh, likely dictated uh, to Bibi Netanyahu personally. Um, and so we also have to be ready for uh, those types of videos, and even worse, to um, to be released by Hamas uh, as a form of uh, psychological warfare and to increase pressure on both Israeli society and the world uh, to put pressure on the government to to make a deal. Um, so will Hamas actually be willing to make a deal? Um, I don't know, uh, but uh, I do know that uh, this is a major, major card that Sinwar is holding uh, and that he's not going to do release them uh, for, for nothing, uh, for nothing. And so, uh, again, it, it's a very, very difficult and complicated war in Gaza along multiple fronts across the Middle East internationally for all the reasons we know what you called the uh, the other week Shani, the uh, the conflict over the conflict uh, and then on top of that you talk about the 240 people still being held uh, by Hamas so very very difficult um, but again we could have a hostage release uh, of civilian numbers tonight uh, in, in whatever deal that may be uh, being cooked up uh, in various back channels uh, so we just don't know and it always comes as a surprise uh, when they are released. And of course, we're hoping that next week when we speak, we will have more hostage releases to report on. As always, our thoughts are with all of the bereaved families, the hostages in Hamas captivity, civilians in Gaza, and all of the IDF soldiers on the front lines. And I, I hope that we'll speak uh, a little bit more optimistically next week. But thank you so much, Neri, for coming on to your own podcast um, <laughs> and, and joining me for this. <laughs> It's uh, it's now become our podcast, Jenny. Uh And I should say, we always like to uh, to finish on a more optimistic note. So on the issue of hostages, like I said, uh, I met with a few of, of the relatives of those being held uh, in Hamas captivity. And, and one story in particular struck me. Um, you know, this man from uh, Kibbutz Niroz, uh, Chaim Perry, 79 years old, uh, was snatched from his home and he is now uh, uh, likely in a Hamas underground tunnel and so uh we met with uh Chaim's son Lior uh and his wife uh Sharon uh in South Tel Aviv last week and uh, remarkable people uh in a very very difficult time to to say the least uh and they sat with us and talked to us about Chaim who sounded like and still sounds like an extraordinary man um we mentioned this last week but it's worth emphasizing a lot of the kibbutzim and villages in the southern Israeli region, what's called the Gaza Envelope, uh, were hardcore left-wing uh, peace activists. Uh, and Chaim Perry was one of the most prominent of them all. Uh, Lior, his son, showed us video of Chaim uh, protesting for the disengagement from Gaza and kind of engaging in conversation or, you know, Israeli conversation, which is an argument, uh, with settlers 
before the disengagement, arguing for withdrawal from Gaza. Chaim Perry was one of those people who, of his own volition, went to the Arab crossing with Gaza and drove sick Gazan children uh, with permits to Israeli hospitals and hospitals in the West Bank. Chaim Perry did. Uh, and so this is the man that was snatched from his home uh, while his neighbors were being slaughtered and is now being held in captivity. And so Lior and Sharon were, were quite strong and they were very generous with their times. And uh, midway through the, the interview, uh, there was a, a rocket alert, a siren. And so we all went uh, into the safe room in their apartment and uh, Sharon was on the phone with their two, their two daughters. Um, I think... Uh, one about 14, the other one maybe around 11 or 12. And uh, they were on their way home from school, again, talk about kind of a somewhat return to normalcy, when the sirens uh, went off. And so they, uh, they had to take cover uh, on the road, um, next to cars like you do, on the ground. And uh, Sharon, you know, was a bit shook up, but, but she, she was fine. And then uh, about 20 minutes later, the girls came home. The girls came home and just the loveliest... The loveliest children, and you know, we were already finishing up the interview, and uh, we were going to get out of their hair. Uh, and the girls were very lovely, and even despite the rocket sirens, right, and despite the fact that their grandfather is a captive in Gaza, held by Hamas, uh, they had a smile on their face. Uh, they seemed okay. They were uh, very kind of pleasant, uh, and got a bit of a kick out of uh, journalists in their living room. And so uh, if this family and these daughters are holding up and remaining strong uh, during this difficult time, uh, that, you know, that gave me uh, hope, uh, both uh, in terms of the country at large uh, and in terms of just the entire situation here. Um, and so that, on a more optimistic note, I wanted just to uh, tell the story of Chaim Perry and, uh, and his family. As our Israeli national anthem says, our Hope is not yet lost. We have not yet given up hope. And I know that Neri and I are very committed to remaining hopeful throughout all of this. And I believe the Jewish people writ large and the Israeli people are, are committed to remaining hopeful. Indeed. Indeed. Um, and we just have to, uh, to hope for the best. And uh, like I said, uh, this isn't going to end anytime soon. And we do have to prepare. <laughs> this is a less optimistic note, Shani. Uh, but we do have to prepare for, um, for more difficult days ahead. Uh, but... Uh, all in all, uh, remaining hopeful. Have a good rest of your week, Neri. You too, Shani. Thanks. On October 7th, 2023, Israelis faced the unthinkable when Hamas militants breached the Gaza border, carried out a violent rampage, took hundreds of Israelis and other foreign citizens hostage, and indiscriminately slaughtered at least 1,400 people, mostly civilians, many of them women, children, and elderly. This conflict has upended Israeli society and exacerbated an already dire humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip, where thousands of Palestinians have already been killed by Israeli airstrikes and misfired rockets launched by militants. As Israelis and Palestinians gird themselves for the war ahead, and we all process the traumatic events of the past two weeks, Israel Policy Forum experts have been providing timely, clear-headed, and sober analysis on the ongoing conflict. For all of our resources on the ongoing Israel-Hamas war, including a timeline of events from 1949 until now, explore our new Israel at War webpage. Links to all of these resources can be found in the show notes of this podcast. For more analysis, visit israelpolicyforum.org.